Well, we have a treat today. Uh, we have with us John Pratt uh, to fill our pulpit this morning, uh, which is a, a great thing. We have a long-standing fellowship with John, and so John was uh, has filled this pulpit before, uh, which has always been a blessing. Um, he was at our men's retreat a couple years ago uh, doing a lecture series on sanctification. And um, actually, uh, it was about three years ago, I believe, that I attended his McDonald lecture at Central Seminary on the views of sanctification, which was um, dynamic. And from that, um, I was able to, to get a booklet on it. And uh, I use that as a reference guide uh, routinely. Uh, John is uh, a professor. Uh, he's a vice president of academics and a professor of New Testament at Central Theological Seminary. Um, he teaches some pretty heavy topics, things that are well beyond me. Uh, Greek reading, Greek exegesis, uh, New Testament biblical theology, uh, New Testament introduction, Gospel of John, and Acts are on that list. And I'm sure there's other courses that he's taught. And so he has his uh, doctorate of theological, theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, he lives locally, so that's really nice for us. Um, his, uh, he has, he's married, uh, been married for a long time, has four kids. I feel kindred with you already. Um, and uh, boy, we have um, a great list of publications on the website at Central Seminary. So if you uh, want to do some reading, uh, you're welcome to do that. And there's a, a list of things that he has published in the past. So John, why don't you come forward and bring us the word this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Dylan. It's a privilege to be able to be here with you folks at Grace Community Fellowship. I re recall being here, like as Dylan said, filling the pulpit now, probably three or four years ago. And uh, I remember then, and I'm anticipating now, a group of people who want to hear the word. And I'm very privileged to be able to open the word with you here this morning and looking forward to doing so. Well, it has been said that the difference between history's boldest accomplishments and its most staggering failures is often the diligent will to persevere. Now listen to these accomplishments. This man failed in business in 31. He was defeated for state legislator in 32. He tried another business in 33. It failed. His fiancée died in 35. He had a nervous breakdown in 36. He was defeated for speaker in 38. He was defeated for elector in 40. In 43, he ran for Congress and he was defeated. He tried again in 48 and was defeated again. He tried running for the Senate in 55. He lost. The next year, he ran for vice president and he lost. In 59, he ran for the Senate again, and he was defeated. In 1860, the man who signed his name, A. Lincoln, was elected the 16th President of the United States. Well, that diligent will to persevere helped Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. But the diligent will to persevere is clearly the focus of the author of Hebrews, where we're going to be looking here this morning. In fact, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking there this morning. Only the author of Hebrews and this focus on the diligent will to persevere uh, looks at this. I, I would say that this diligent will to persevere that we read about here in the book of Hebrews is far more important and the outcome far greater than becoming a president. In fact, the author of Persevere speaks of, I mean, author of Hebrews speaks of persevering in our relationship with Christ. And I'd like to read here in Hebrews 12. We're going to look at the first three verses of this chapter this morning as we consider that diligent will to persevere. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, the author of Hebrews, as you know the, how the book is laid out, has just concluded a whole catalog of persevering faith in chapter 11. And character after character who persevered in the faith. And now he moves in his letter to, to uh, exhortation as he nears the end. And it is here in these three verses that we find an exhortation that is similar to what we have already seen, as if you've read through the book, seen several times in the letter. Go back to chapter 4, and he says, hold fast. In chapter 10, a couple of times, in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast. And in verse 36 of chapter 10, he says, you have need for endurance, for holding on. And our writer then is just continuing here a similar theme he's been using throughout the letter. And he draws a metaphor in this verse, in these verses as you, can, as you already heard as I read, from the athletic world that pictures well the point that he wants to make. And it's right there in the middle of verse 12. You notice the one big command here is, let us run. See that? Let us run. This is the big command. This is the big point. And this is the point I would like to bring forth here this morning, and that is that you and I, we must keep on running. Keep running. Now, as we look at this text, I believe there are two important truths that we need to know and understand as we consider this command to keep on running. The first we're going to spend a good deal of time on, and that is, what is exactly does he mean by let us run, let us keep running? And then secondly, we're going to look at the focus of our race, the focus of our running. As you might know, it'd be very difficult to run a race if you don't know where you're headed. Okay, so the focus of our running. So first of all, the meaning of, what it, of that command to run, and then the focus of our running is what we would like to what I'd like to look at with you here this morning. So let's begin with that first idea, the meaning of the command. And when we think about the meaning of this command to run, I want us to notice, first of all, the uniqueness of the race. The uniqueness of your race. Because notice what he says here. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, this race is one that is set before you, each of us, individually, uniquely. And unlike the video game, maybe you're familiar with the Mario Kart video game, you get to select what racetrack you're going to race as you get ready to play that video game. Well, we don't get to select our racetrack. This is a racetrack that God puts before us. And it's going to be unique for every single individual Christian. God sets this track before you. He has designed it specifically for you. And this race course has been determined by him. You know, it's tempting, isn't it? It's easy to compare our race track, our course, with others around us. In fact, Paul reminds us how foolish that is, that we dare not compare ourselves with others. 2 Corinthians 10:12 is where he makes this point. In fact, I would like to read that just to remind us of that very important truth. As he says in 2 Corinthians 10:12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So we see it's foolish for us to compare our race course with others. We need to avoid that temptation. But I, I want us to notice as well the race courses that were set before people, even as 
back in chapter 11. I'm going to just read through a, a little list here and think about each of these individuals' courses that God gave to them. I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews 11, verse 32. He says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So we have all kinds of different courses that were spoken of there. You know, there's only one person that stopped, I mean, that was in the lion's den in, in the Old Testament, right? That was Daniel's unique course. And all of the other statements that are made there relating to the unique courses that God set before each of these. And each of those situations that we just read were extremely exciting and positive results that took place in those racetracks. But notice in the middle of verse 35 what other people's courses looked like. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Wow, so we, here we see whether in triumph or in what we might call tragedy, these individuals continued to exercise faith. In fact, we see in verse 39, all of these were commended through their faith. They persevered despite whatever tragedy or triumph of the race that God had put before them. I'd like to bring this point out even more specifically in a comparison between two prophets in the Old Testament. One you've heard of a lot, and one you may not have ever heard of other than maybe in your read through the Bible, and you might have just kind of passed over it quickly. I'd like to uh, encourage you to look back to Jeremiah 26. Okay, so we're going to look at a couple of prophets that are mentioned in Jeremiah 26. Obviously, the, the one that we all know, Jeremiah himself, is in, in focus here in this chapter. But I want you to notice the racetracks of two prophets here. The prophet Jeremiah and another prophet that's mentioned in this chapter, his name is Uriah. Okay, so we read here at the beginning of Jeremiah 26, verse 2, thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. Okay, so here's the command that's given to Jeremiah. And he obeys, as he always did. Verse 4, God says to him, You shall say, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you, listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Well, what happens after Jeremiah gives this message? As you can tell, it's not a very positive message. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking in the, the, these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house, this temple, shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So, there's a typical response that we see throughout the book of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah preaches, the people don't listen, and in fact, they want to punish him, and they indeed do so. In fact, verse 16, all the officials, all the people said to the priests, this man, <clears throat> these are some other officials that now come around Jeremiah, this man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And so we get to the end of the chapter we find that the Lord protects Jeremiah in this case, like he often does, as you read through the book. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. So here we have the story. Jeremiah preaches. The people want to put him to death. Some others come around and protect him, and he's not killed. 
Okay, now I want to compare his story with that of Uriah. Let's look at Uriah, who is also mentioned beginning in verse 20. Same chapter. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah. And he prophesied against this city and against the land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. So, okay, so far, same song and dance that Jeremiah had, right? He's doing exactly the same thing that Jeremiah did. So Jehoiakim, uh, so when Uriah heard it, he was afraid, he fled, and he escaped to Egypt. The king Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt. They brought him to king Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body in the burial place of the common people. All right, here's two, here's two prophets, Jeremiah and Uriah. They have the same message. They, do the, they, they obey God the same way. Jeremiah lives. Uriah dies. Two different courses. And yet they both did exactly what God was calling them to do. So let's bring that back to our text here in Hebrews chapter 12. You are given a course. God has placed you on and he is calling you. Whatever that course looks like, he's calling you to endure. He's calling you to hold fast, to persevere in your relationship with Christ. We don't have any answers given here as to why Jeremiah lived and Uriah died. But we know that God was in control of the, that situation just like he's in control of yours. And we may think that our course could be better, would have fewer bumps, Fewer valleys, fewer curves. Why don't I get a straight track that goes right straight to the end, you might say. I want to remind you that your path, your path is the perfect one for you because God has designed it. So I encourage you to run your race, the race course that God has given to you, with the knowledge that a good, wise, and loving God knows exactly the course that you need. And it is indeed a privilege to be able to serve God and to run the course, the race that is set before you. So that you have a unique course. Second thing I'd like you to notice about this command is that we are told here the manner in which we are to run. He says, let us run with endurance. Endurance. This point is important because our author, of course, reiterates this very idea at the end of verse 3, where he says, I don't want you to grow weary or faint-hearted. Same idea. Endure. Don't give up. Keep going. Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to understand what a lack of patience, a lack of perseverance might look like, before I talk about it in a positive way, I think, what it does look like. But what does it not look like? I think, first of all, we could become fearful or anxious in our race. We might wonder whether or not God is really going to deliver on his promise to be our ever-present help in trouble, to supply all our needs, to never leave us or forsake us. And this fear, then, can demonstrate itself when we show a lack of nerve or a weakening of resolve. Perhaps our fear of someone laughing at us or rejecting us keeps us from being a witness for Christ as we should. So we become fearful or anxious. I think another way we might show a lack of perseverance is that we complain. You know, we're, we're on the racetrack and we're trying to move forward, but we're mumbling about the weather and the inclines, the curves, and the fellow runners are getting in our way. Why doesn't God just let our race be what we want it to be? This kind of attitude, again, is failing to run with patience because we're, we're complaining. Another way I think we fail to have endurance is obvious, this is maybe obvious, is that we quit. We, uh, we walk to the side of the course and we sit down. Are you being tempted? Does that ever sound like you? 
you might say, I don't need to serve in this ministry anymore. I've put in my time. Now, someone else can greet that visitor. Uh, after all, I'm shy and introspective. Why should I try to have a relationship with that person over there? Um, all that ever happens when I try that sort of thing is I end up getting hurt in the end. So I'm not going to do that. I quit. I go along the side of the race and sit down. I think these are some of the ways that we show a lack of endurance. But what, is, what does good patience look like? What does endurance look like? Well, it, it means finishing the race. Are you being tempted to give up in the race? Have the circumstances of life and the rough treatment by other Christians or the lack of spoken appreciation or any number of other factors caused you to become impatient in the race? Just keep running. Now look back, we could go back and look at Jeremiah time after time. People, in fact, he was told at the very beginning of his ministry, I want, God said to him, I want you to go out and preach, and guess what, Jeremiah? Nobody's going to listen to you. But keep doing it. And that's what he did. He kept running. Run with endurance is what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do. This ought to be the manner and the way in which we run. We just keep running. We keep persevering to the end of the race. Well, the third thing we, we see here as we think about the meaning of this command to run is the responsibilities that are related to the running. There are two responsibilities that are given to us. <clears throat> I might call them prerequisites. I might call them, again, I'm using the word responsibilities here, that are related to this command to run. And you see them there in verse 1. Let us <clears throat> lay aside every weight is the first of the responsibilities. We need to throw off everything that hinders us. These hindrances uh, may not indeed be sinful in themselves. In fact, he's going to talk about getting rid of sin, which clings so closely shortly. So I don't think we're necessarily talking about sinful things here. But these are weights which are slowing us down. They're hindering us and preventing us from finishing the race. Sin can certainly antagonize us in our race, but I th again, I think these hindrances are, uh, that, that he's speaking of in this phrase are a lot more difficult to see. They might take the form of relationships, possessions, types of entertainment, things which are not wrong in themselves. I think it's interesting to see what Jesus said, mentioned back in, Luke 14, 26, where he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, those are pretty challenging words that Jesus gives. They're hard words, and they remind us of the ease with which we can put spouses, children, parents, Good relationships are the ease we can put those ahead of Christ. You know, we can put possessions ahead of Christ. Our cars, our furniture, jewelry, boats, electronics, gadgets, and so on. Tools. Have, you, have your possessions begun to master you in your time? Are they keeping you from attention to the priorities of life, and particularly from helping you persevere in the race of faith. Now, uh, one other illustration here. I, I had a friend that I went to seminary with. He mentioned that for him, his biggest weight was watching college football on Saturday mornings during the football season. And he would get up, and the first game of the day, he would start watching, and he would watch all day long. And you get to the end of the day when he should have been working on his Greek, other important things like that while you're in seminary. And he had wasted the whole day away watching football. Well, there's nothing wrong with watching a football game. But if that becomes a weight, and it certainly had become that in his life, that needs to be put off. Needs to, we need to put that in its proper place. And I might ask, what is hindering your progress 
in the race. You know, if you struggle with spending personal time in pursuit of relationship with Christ through the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study, what types of things are filling that very important priority that you ought to have in your life? Are there other things that are getting in and keeping you too much sleep or too much fun things that you're doing? Too many books that you're, other books that you're reading and you're not concentrating on that most important element of your walk with Christ. We need to lay these things aside. Again, I'm not suggesting that you not spend time with your children, that you not support your family with work. I am saying that an assessment of your use of time and priorities is necessary when the Bible says to lay aside hindrances that can keep you from running with perseverance. So, that's the first responsibility, lay aside every weight. Secondly, we also see that we are to remove entangling sin. The writer here uses the language in my translation here, which sin which sin which clings so closely. Our author is encouraging us to be vigilant in our battle against sin. Because sin can entangle us, can slow us down. I think sometimes this text gets looked at as you have a besetting sin, and that's the sin you really need to zero in on. And that, I'm not disagreeing that you might have a particular sin that really hits you hard. But he's not just talking about that one besetting sin. He's talking about all sin that you need to keep from your life, that you need to fight. We all need to keep fighting sin because sin can slow us down. It can cause us to get taken out of the race. This certainly seems to have happened to some of the Corinthian believers, if you look in 1 Corinthians 11 and see that they were using or they were coming to the Lord's table inappropriately. And he says, some of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. So there is indeed a, a failure that can come by failing to deal with sin in our lives. So in your life, what does sin look like for you? I think we might tend to underestimate the power of sin in our lives <clears throat> for several reasons. And these become, I think, excuses, even though they're great truths. In our regeneration, we know that at the point that we receive a new life, new birth from the Holy Spirit, makes us new, and therefore is fighting against sin and in our lives, we are very thankful for this new life, this new birth which we receive in our forgiveness of sins, we know that all of our sins have been forgiven, past and future, so that we will never be punished for them in hell. We know that we have received freedom in Christ when we are saved. We know that the necessity of sinning is no longer true of our experience. And amazingly, by God's grace, we can now do righteous things. And these truths, these are great truths, can become ways that we make excuses for ourselves. We make excuses for not fighting sin as we should. We make excuses for failing to realize sin's deceptive power. I was just talking to someone the other day about a brother, and we were trying to figure out how could he have fallen into this particular sin. And the only answer is the deceitfulness of sin can catch you and trap you and keep you from being an effective believer for Christ. So fight it. We dare not become lax in our struggle against sin. Sin is still very much a part of our experience, sadly, isn't it? Those habits of our old life, those temptations to sin that threaten us daily, willingness to sin is still there within us. So we battle against sin. I think that's why Paul uses battle metaphors, like in Ephesians 6.11, to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Or in 1 Timothy 6.12, to fight the good fight of faith. We must fight against sin in our lives. We must not make excuses for it. Oh, that's just the way I am. Or, hey, this has been a family problem for generations. So what? Or, it's so hard to deal with this sin. You don't understand how much I struggle with this. Look at what that other person has done to me. We have all kinds of ways of excusing our sin. We must not downplay our sin. We must not 
say that one little vice in my life isn't going to hurt anything. No, we must not ignore our sin. We must say no to any sin that's in our lives. Don't become used to sin. I want to encourage you to hate it, to seek it out in your life, to ask others to help you see it, help you see your sin, to root it out. Well, do you need help with this? I think we all do. That's why we have brothers and sisters in the body, to help one another, to gladly and lovingly lend a hand to us in our struggle. In fact, I want to give you a challenge here this morning. Go to one that you love and say, what sin do you see in my life? What can I be working on? What, what, am, I, what, am, I blind, what am I blind to? Or another way you might ask it is, give me five adjectives that describe me. <laughs> uh, what, would your, what, what is your loved one going to say to you? What is that friend going to say to you in that regard? We don't want to allow sin to entangle us any longer. So start running in the race rather than slouching along the track with these heavy encumbrances of sin wrapped around us. All right, so we need to keep running. That's the, as we've looked at the meaning of that command. Let us run. We've seen that it is a unique race that God has given to us. We've seen that we must run with patience and endurance, and we've seen that we must do so re realizing that we need to put off these entangling sins, and we need to uh, get rid of these things which entangle us and uh, that weigh us down. There's a second aspect then of this text that we need to think of this morning. Not only the meaning of that very clear command to run, to run, to keep running, but we need to understand the focus of our race, the focus of our race, and you can see it there at the beginning of verse 2, looking to Jesus. And again in verse 3, consider him. Okay, so we need to focus on Jesus. But there's another thing we need to focus on. Okay, so that's, for, we'll be looking specifically at focusing on Jesus in our race but I also want you to notice at the beginning of verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So as, as I look at this command to run, I think the focus here is one of looking back to these witnesses and then one of looking up at Christ. Okay, so these are foci that I guess you could say that we have in our race. Looking back to this cloud of witnesses. What is he talking about there when he mentions this as our uh, motivating factor here, the focus of our race in looking back at these who have gone before us, this great cloud of witnesses? I think chapter 11 is filled with these great cloud of witnesses that are there for us. They're faithful followers from previous generations who have stuck it out. Their example is set before us as an encouragement to persevere in our walk of faith. They were tested. They were persecuted. They were beaten down. But they still persevered in their faith. I'm reminded of a friend of mine. He, he, is, his, he, at his, uh, he has a cabin. And in his cabin, in his bedroom, he has this uh, painted statement from his great-great-grandfather that's related to I am going to follow Christ no matter what. Something along those lines. I can't remember the exact quote. But what is that, what is that little reminder there for? It's reminding him that my great-great-grandfather my great followed Christ. He persevered. I need to as well. And that's exactly, I think, why the writer of Hebrews gives us this whole litany of people in chapter 11 as just one example. And you can think of any number of people in your life that God has used to remind you of the need for perseverance and to show you that they did it. They persevered, and I can too. I'm going to just draw one of the examples from chapter 11, and that is the example of Noah. You know, he was asked to build a big boat before anybody had ever built a boat. And not only was it, a, it wasn't a little boat, you know, it wasn't like a canoe or a fishing boat. It was 450 feet long. 
75 feet wide, three stories high. And again, it had never rained, never rained before. And based solely on the word of God, he constructed this ark. We have words to describe people who say that they've heard voices telling them to do certain things, don't we? We call them nuts, we call them crazy. They're deranged. Can you imagine the words that Noah heard as he was building this ark over many decades? We know. Several years it took him to build that boat. And he continued to do so. He endured. He stuck it out. You know, we are called as believers to, to hold to and to uh, expect, I mean, that, that God expects us to believe that definitely are not looked at in our culture as being normal things, as being wise things. In fact, they're looked at oftentimes as being foolish or as being unloving or unkind. What, marriage between a man and a woman? That's becoming more and more odd as far as how people would define marriage in our culture, sadly. Or to, am I supposed to forgive someone who has sinned against me rather than taking revenge on them? Wives submitting to their husbands? Really? That language? You're, gonna, you're, you're willing to use that language? Talk about different roles in a marriage? Well, these are clear commands of God's word. And we are called to obey them and to hold to them. And just like these who are mentioned in God's word, who held to the faith, who persevered in their races, God helped them, and he will help us to persevere in the faith. Just like he did with Noah, he will do with us. That's why he says, we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Let us focus and remember what God, how God helped them. Secondly, I want us to focus and to focus our gaze upward at Christ. Because he says, look to Jesus. He is called here the founder and the perfecter. Some translations have the author and the completer of our faith. See, Christ is the one who began our faith. He did so historically. He's the one who became flesh, who died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, who rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has truly been the originator of the gospel. We trust in his finished work on Calvary in order to receive forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Christ is our faith originator. Historically speaking, that's certainly true. He's also our faith originator salvifically. He is the one who begins the work of grace in us. We do not first come to God because we cannot. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2.1. Rather, God, Christ by his grace, draws us. We see this in John 6.44 where we're told, Jesus tells the crowd, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Christ is the one who begins our faith. We read that in Philippians 1.6. He who began the good work in you. Notice that verse does not say, you who began that work when you trusted in Christ. No, God began that work in you. He who began the good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ. Our salvation is begun by the work of God, who draws us to himself through Christ. So Christ is the author. He's the initiator of our faith. He's also the completer of it, the perfecter of our faith. He brings our faith to completion. Well, that's a great truth as well. He, he brings, he, we will experience this completion of our faith, of course, in our glorification, when our position in Christ becomes our experience, and we no longer have to struggle, struggle with sin, and our faith has become sight. Notice here the interplay between God's work, Jesus is the completer, and our work. We are told to run. That command is given to you and me. Let us run, and Jesus is the completer. It's an important interplay that we see throughout the scriptures, and we cannot err on either side of that uh, road, if we want to think of it that way. We want to emphasize God's work too much, 
is to fail to deal radically with sin in our lives and to become spiritually lazy in the fight against sin. To emphasize too much um, our work is then to remove the divine origin and reason for righteous acts and to rely too heavily on ourselves and to become self-sufficient. So we can become too lazy or we become too self-sufficient. No, we need to trust Christ and his work of completing our faith, and we need to obey the command that is given to us here as well to run with patience the race that is set before us. See, we obey and we seek to obey because of the Spirit's work in us. We do not obey nor seek to obey so that we can gain the Spirit's favor, but we must ever remember that our growth and sanctification does not originate with our effort, but with God's gracious working in us as he produces fruit unto sanctification. So when Jesus is called here our founder and perfecter, he starts the work, he finishes the work. And why does he do this? So that he gets the glory. He gets the glory. In fact, if I look back at 2 Corinthians 3, 5, reminded of this not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us but our sufficiency is from God our sufficiency is from God he is doing the work and so we focus in our race on Christ the author and the completer of our faith we're also told here some other, another aspect of who Jesus is, as we're learning here about his identity, as, as the writer of Hebrews describes it here, we're told that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now remember, we're called to run with endurance, and here's Jesus, the prime example of what it means to endure. He endured the cross. He went to the cross for us. And notice the amazing substitution that has taken place here. Uh, I mean, the amazing hope, I should say, rather, of, of what is going on here. When Jesus says, when the text says, for the joy that was set before him. You see, joy awaits. And the author is pointing, or making the point here that Jesus looked ahead to the joy that was set before him as a means of helping him to endure that horrible death that he had to endure on the cross for us. He despised the shame, we're told here in the text, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. In despising the shame, not only did Jesus experience the humiliation and the sadness of exchanging the joys of heaven for earth and a human body, that would have been amazing enough, just coming to this earth and having to deal with watching and seeing sin all around him, having been in the perfect uh, paradise of heaven with his uh, with the Father and with the Spirit in that, rela- in, in that place together. Just leaving heaven to come here was a big, um, a, a big evidence of Jesus' humiliation. But not only did he take on flesh, he endured the death of a cross, the most shameful type of death available. In fact, in Galatians 3.13, we're told that Christ became a curse for us, a curse for us. And the result of Jesus' willingness to suffer in our place is that he was seated at the right hand of God. Another reference here to the core truth of the gospel. See, Jesus' incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then his session at the right hand of the Father is all part of that true, of the important gospel message that we must relate and and. and, and can't help but relate to those around us. We should never get tired of rehearsing and remembering the amazing work of Jesus, who instead of staying where he was comfortable, left the perfection of heaven and became incarnated, along with all of the challenging things that come with being human, like pain and hunger and fatigue and thirst and aging. And then he died. He died a horrible death, a death that was horrible not just in its physical torture, but even more so because of its sin-bearing nature. He took our sin upon himself. 
so much so that his own father turned his back on him. The pain of the cross was horrid in its physical elements, but it was not nearly as horrid in its physical elements as it was when his father turned his back on Jesus. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship was severed at that point in his death for us. Then he rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now intercedes for us, and from where he sent the Spirit, who now ministers in our lives. Rehearsing this gospel message is such a wonderful blessing that we enjoy, and I am not, I would not be surprised if there are some here this morning who have never placed their personal faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross for them. And I would call you to believe, to repent and to turn to this Jesus, to look to Jesus, the author and the completer of faith, to look to him and to trust in him for salvation because only he can bring salvation to you. Well, the motivation here to focus on Jesus is repeated in verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself. He didn't allow weariness, despair, or discouragement to deter him from obedience. In fact, he gave the quintessential, I think, example of what it means to endure. He said, Lord, I want you to take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, and by the way, have you ever mentioned, have that ever been in one of your prayers? Lord, could you take this race course away from me? <laughs> I'm tired of this. I, this is really hard. It's not wrong to pray like Jesus prayed. Will you take this cup away from me? But what was his next phrase? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is the attitude of endurance that God calls us to have. And Jesus gave that example to us. Not, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus endured the pain that none of us will ever have to endure. A physical pain that was horrid. He took our sin upon himself. He was separated from the Father in his death. And as our author and completer, he exemplifies the response that we must have in our lives. Obey the will of God. Stay on the path without wavering. As he says there, uh, so that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. This brings us back again to the theme of our sermon. Keep on running. Run with endurance. This is the uh, call to us in the uniqueness of your race, to run that race with patience, to run that race in light of our responsibilities of laying aside weights that are in keeping us from running like we should, from sin that is keeping us from running like we should, and then to look to those in our focus in our race, to look back at those who have endured and have continued and, and, and did endure in, the, in their lives all the way to the end, and to look to Christ, the author and completer of our faith. So I'd like to leave you with some final application points here as we draw things to a close. The race set before you is unique. Isn't God amazing how he is so wonderfully working out the details of your life for, God's, for his glory? So thank him and trust him as you run along your course. Now let's admit it. We could all stand to lose a few pounds. Now I'm not talking about physical weight. I'm talking about spiritual hindrances and entangling sins. We must be constantly evaluating our use of time. What good things are crowding out better things? Are we settling for the good when we should seek the better? Likewise, are we being vigilant about removing sin from our lives? And thirdly, the beauty of Christ, his incarnation, his death on the cross, his resurrection and exaltation to the Father's right hand, we need to contemplate this beauty. What a savior we have. By focusing on him, our particular path, our particular race course, grows less difficult and the finish line that much closer and that much more glorious. We must run with perseverance. Abraham Lincoln 
received a reward, the White House. Big deal. You will receive the reward of eternal life. So keep running and persevere in the faith to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this exhortation from the writer of Hebrews. May you give us grace to run this race that you have given to us, to persevere in it, to keep these entangling sins and weights away, and to focus on how you have helped those in the past live for you and endure to the end, and how Jesus, our great high priest, our great savior, the great sin substitute, how Jesus has indeed gone before us, enduring that cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Father. What a Savior. And we praise you for Jesus and for the motivation we can receive from him to run this race you've given to us. I ask for your grace and help to help us, each one of us, to run this race with patience for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hearty amen. Amen. What a great message. Thank you to the Lord for using you this morning, John, to bring us your word. Just want to remind us, how can we endure? Why can we endure? Because of the God whom we serve, his glory. Uh, even as we read in Revelation this morning, his robe, this golden sash across his chest, he is the priestly judge his hair white like snow, the eternal God, his eyes like a flame of fire. He has perfect knowledge in judgment, his feet glowing bronze, the purity even in his judgment as he will come to judge the living and the dead. His voice, like many waters, is complete authority, demanding complete attention of us to even take what we were taught this morning from Hebrews and to be faithful, obedient servants of his his hand holding the seven stars, his complete authority over us in this church, in each individual here, his protection just the same. Consider his mouth from it coming the sharp two-edged sword, the word that you have that is the standard and means of judgment, and his face shining like the sun, that overwhelming splendor and glory that belongs to him. May we be reminded to endure in our walk with him even this week to maximize the bringing of glory to his name and all that he has called each one of us to accomplish in the days before us. You are dismissed. <laughs>